Hey, this is Gavin Jackson with the South Carolina Lead, and we're continuing our summer look at quote-unquote interesting stuff. In this episode, I speak with Professor Stephen Lowe. He's a professor of history at the University of South Carolina Union and director of the Liberal Studies and Organizational Leadership Programs at the University of South Carolina's Palmetto College. We discuss his new book, The Slow Undoing, The Federal Courts and the Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina. It's a comprehensive study of South Carolina's federal district courts during the long civil rights movement. The book argues for a reconsideration of the role of the federal courts in the civil rights movement and places them as a central battleground at the intersections of struggles over race, law, and civil rights. So take it away, Gavin. Thank you, Gavin. Professor Lowe, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, first off, uh, kind of lead us off here and tell us what prompted you to delve into this subject matter and to write this book, The Slow Undoing, The Federal Courts and the Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina. Well, it, it, it had an interesting germination process, and it's uh, been something I've been working on for quite some time. Um, it actually started with my uh, when I was working on a topic for my doctoral dissertation. And originally, I had wanted to do something in judicial biography. There had been a lot of uh, biographies of Supreme Court justices and a few, not many, of lower court uh, judges. But when I, when I started looking at uh, the district courts in South Carolina, uh, what I found was a lot of civil rights cases that I had really never heard of before because they were not the big Supreme Court cases that are part of the canon. So I, I rapidly switched gears and started working on those civil rights cases. And the more I delved into it, the more uh, I found that, that, that South Carolina had a really rich history that goes well beyond Briggs v. Elliott, which of course was part of Brown versus Board of Education. I felt that it was a, a story that, that needed telling. And so I've been working on this for many years now, and I've, I've had a few articles come out of it and a few efforts to get the book out. You know, every time I tried to publish the book, uh, it got better and better. And finally, it's uh, the finished product that uh, just came out with the USC Press uh, last month. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, yes, like you said, there's so much rich detail in this book. I can understand why it took you so long to research it and to write it. Um, early on in the book, I feel like you kind of set the stage pretty well, especially during this uh, you know time during Jim Crow. We're talking you know, early 20th century. Uh, this passage really kind of stuck out to me. It said, white supremacy enjoyed support throughout the South, most especially in rural areas, but also in cities such as Charleston that thrived on their old South traditions. Of particular importance were political figures with ties to rural areas with predominantly black populations and neo-feudal economies and social structures. These rural politicians, like most of their white constituents, were suspicious of progress, liberal education, and Yankees. They feared the threat to states' rights, creeping socialism, and the federal bureaucracy, and sought to suppress the social and ideological aspects of Southern change. Pretty pretty big uh, phrasing right there, and a lot of it I feel like still pertinent today. Uh, kind of tell us about that stage and back in the 1940s and in the 50s when all this is really happening and it really playing out hard in the courts. Sure. Um, well, I, I think that uh, if you look at the, the political history of South Carolina, you'll see that a lot of the political power really does not reside in many ways in the cities. Uh, a, a lot of the rural legislators ended up uh, amassing a lot of power that was disproportionate to the number of voters that they uh, represented. And so that aspect of it is always part of, of South Carolina politics. It even, it's even you know somewhat true today. 
But the the other part about the worry about creeping socialism and things like that, socialism has always been sort of a uh, a trope that is used by people with a conservative bent, shall we say, to sort of make a uh, or create a, a straw man to prevent social change. Conflating social change with socialism is uh, a pretty well-known and well-used tactic of uh, people of that uh, political persuasion. And so the the growth of the federal bureaucracy was something that came out of uh, World War One and World War Two and, and the Great Depression and the New Deal. And there were a lot of uh, suspicious people when it comes to that because they were really worried about losing their stranglehold is probably too strong a term, but I'll use it anyway, their stranglehold on political power uh, in their states. It's not just South Carolina, it's other states as well, but South Carolina is just the one I happen to, to, to focus on. And so when we look at all that and that, that, that context for the situation, tell us about the role that the federal district court played during the civil rights movement in the state. Uh, was it really the, the primary engine to make change stick in the state? I mean, you look at what happens on the federal level and what needs to happen in the district courts to really reinforce those rulings, essentially. Right. I think one of the, uh, the irony of, of this is that when you look at the, the federal judges in South Carolina and the federal courts, it really is a mixed bag. And there's almost a generational divide among the judges. And, and I'm going to leave Wadey's Waring out of the picture for just a second because he's, he's really way more of an outlier than, than he might appear to be. You know, you've got people like George Bell Temmerman Sr., who is an ardent segregationist. Actually, uh, there's a story I relate in the book uh, that probably is worthy of more exploration by somebody about how he got his his pastor run out of the congregation because the pastor was a, a, a racial moderate. Uh, Temmerman, I believe, was a deacon and was one of the people who um, helped get this pastor run out of, uh, maybe not run out of town, but certainly run out of that particular church. And I think one of the things is about the judges and about the federal courts is they have a really ambiguous role, I think, in a lot of ways, because while judges were pretty quick to enforce Supreme Court rulings in some areas, they were not as quick to enforce them in other areas. And I I think there was some reluctance to really go out on a limb in terms of social justice and civil rights by a lot of these folks because, A, they had seen what happened to Wadey's Waring. I mean, Wadey's Waring was practically run out of South Carolina because of his racial moderation. And even he didn't start out as a racial moderate. When he, um, in some of his earlier cases, he is a little bit more conservative and a little bit more patronizing, I guess you could say. But then as... Um, as, as his career went on, he, he t- turned into a racial liberal in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the judges, first, they came out of a, a, a situation where they were not racial moderates or liberals themselves. And second, uh, they were reluctant to pursue that because they did not want to suffer the consequences of ostracization such that uh, you know, Wadey's Waring experienced as well. 
so if, if you look at the some of the earlier cases, if you look at uh, at Temmerman, for example, when Sarah May Fleming tried to desegregate the the bus line in Columbia, his his rulings were uh, spectacularly uh, old fashioned. Uh, argued, in fact, that Plessy v. Ferguson had not been uh, overturned in Brown v. Board of Education, and relied on that interpretation of the law to in, to inform his decisions uh, until he was really, you know, too sick to continue in the early 60s. A lot of the um, intricacies there and how this this battles continue to play out. And that's what you go into in such great detail in the book. Uh, I do want to talk more about school integration too, which of course took years to happen, even following uh, Brown versus Board of Education, that landmark case decided by the Supreme Court in 1954. Uh, but again, South Carolina, we had our own version of that case, like we mentioned earlier, Briggs v. Elliott in 1950, which Thurgood Marshall was the lead counsel on for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Can you explore that defeat, that, that case a little bit more and its connection to Brown and its importance in our state? That particular case, and, and as you know, there was a previous case that was uh, dismissed on a technicality because... Levi Pearson was paying taxes to a district that his children should not have been attending. So that was that was a short-lived uh, case. But uh, Briggs v. Elliott was an interesting case because it really went farther than anything else had gone before. I mean, there there were cases desegregating higher education and, and, and graduate education, but the idea of desegregating public schools is one that I, I, I think more even than colleges and, and graduate schools touched the nerves of people so much because, I mean, if you look at some of the arguments against desegregation, even though they were couched in scientific terms, they were really uh, based deeply on on emotional responses to black children and white children going to school together. In the Bricks case, you have a situation where the school system, which was allegedly equal, though separate, uh, was far from it. You had you know, white children with uh, access to buses and closer schools and better schools and better equipped schools. And African-Americans uh, were willing to put their lives, really, at risk in order to claim what was their constitutional right. Had it not been for Briggs and the other cases from the other states that became Brown v. Board of Education, I'm, I, I don't know exactly how the process of desegregation would have taken place. I mean, even, even with Briggs in 54, you had, uh, it was until, wasn't until 1970 that schools in South Carolina really desegregated. And at that point, there were, in some districts, so few white students going to the public schools that desegregation was just that in name only, because there weren't enough white students to really have a desegregated school system. It was segregated, but it was no longer legally segregated. Yeah, you're talking about 16 years between that ruling and full desegregation in our state, really kind of indicative. And I guess, again, why you spend so much time looking in into Brown and the ramifications of it in our state, too, since it took so long. Uh, you know, you look at 1963 with Harvey Gantt going to Clemson, the first black student going to Clemson there. Um, and that kind of we can go into the civil rights era in a moment. But I want to talk about Briggs v. Elliott again, because Jay Witt is wearing the, the judge there. 
Uh, he faced retaliation after being the lone dissenting judge on that ruling. Uh, and he is a key figure in so much of the precedent and so many deci- decisions made when it comes to civil rights in our state. Can you illuminate for folks just who he is and, and how he figures into this movement? Sure. Uh, well, Wade Waring was really an interesting character. I mean, his, his um, lineage goes back to the earliest days of colonial South Carolina. And he was a very prominent judge and a very prominent member of Charleston society. His second wife was uh, a northerner. Going back to that reference to Yankees and the suspicion of Yankees you mentioned earlier. And I think she had a moderating influence on him as a person and as a, and really as a jurist. One of the things that's really interesting about him is that, I mean, he is, he's widely credited by many historians at least with sort of nudging Thurgood Marshall toward the idea of full desegregation, not just a better version of separate but equal, but a, a true desegregation that would have you know, black children and white children going to school together. And, and I think that's really an interesting thing about Waring is that he, he moves from a sort of racially moderate point of view in the Wrighton case that would have desegregated the University of South Carolina Law School had it not been for the, the plaintiff, John Wrighton, sort of backing out. I mean, I don't want to put a lot of... Uh, I don't want to cast aspersions at Mr. Wrighton because he actually, he went to law school eventually at South Carolina State and became a, a, a very good civil rights attorney in his own right later on. But Waring didn't, in, in, in 46, Waring wasn't pushing for desegregation. And yet by 51, he's beginning to do so. And I think that's an interesting uh, transformation that you see in him that you really don't see in a lot of these other judges, whether they're moderate or conservative or even reactionary, they tend to to stay that way throughout their careers. Yeah. One of his opinions dealing with voting rights in the 1940s, he wrote, uh, it is time for South Carolina to rejoin the union. It is time to fall in step with other states and to adopt the American way of conducting elections. It makes you wonder what would have happened if he wasn't (laughs) a part of all this, right? Like, it's interesting to see uh, absolutely. I mean, if, if every federal judge in South Carolina was like George Bell Timmerman, then the state would have had a much different legal record and probably something that I would not have wanted to study because uh, one of the, the things that makes it interesting is the intricacies and the differences and you know, and the legal arguments of people like, like Waring. Whereas Timmerman is... Um, over here saying that uh, essentially echoing not just Plessy, but echoing Dred Scott saying that uh, there's there's nothing that can, you know, you, you can't force anyone to engage civilly with someone that they don't want to engage with. And using that as a justification to maintain segregation while wearing is saying just the opposite, that we are you know, the, the nation has progressed from the Civil War. We've progressed from Reconstruction and Jim Crow. It, we're, we're beyond that, and South Carolina should act like we're beyond that. And, and as, you, as he said, and as, as you quoted, uh, rejoin the union. I, I think there's still some people who would be very happy to not rejoin the union even today, but uh, that's what Waring was got, where, where he was coming from, you know, back in the back in the forties and fifties. Yeah, a bit of a terrifying reality right there. But again, history being the judge, and you know, we do see it now. And 
uh, in black and white, and we can see how things progressed, of course. And, you know, you mentioned, of course, several different ways white South Carolinian, uh, South Carolina politicians sought to defeat changes, you know, whether it's by trying to make the Democratic Party a private club to skirt voting rights issues or attack the NAACP by labeling it a subversive organization. But talking about the NAACP in the state, it was it was really critical to these legal battles starting in the 1940s and just really kind of pressuring them on and through the civil rights movement era, too. Uh, what role did they really play in, in helping to affect some change? Pivotal and and, and, and and crucial role was played by the NAACP. I mean, it, it was started pretty small in South Carolina, and there wasn't a state chapter until relatively uh, later on. Uh, there were individual city chapters, but then there was a state chapter a little bit later, or a state conference, sorry. And one of the interesting things about it is that you know, a lot of the people who are part of the story that I'm trying to tell were were members of the NAACP. A lot of them were not. A lot of the people who were involved in these cases were not members of the NAACP. But even in those cases, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, you know, led by Thurgood Marshall, played a, an important role in taking on those cases. But a lot of people were members of the NAACP. J. Arthur Brown, for example, who's Children integrated the Charleston schools, was the leader, uh, one of the leaders of the Charleston chapter. Gloria Rackley in Orangeburg was a member of the NAACP and one of the one of the state leaders and so on and so forth. So but even when the people themselves, the, the plaintiffs themselves may not have been members, the NAACP supported the cases through uh, lawyers, a lot of the lawyers in South Carolina who took on these cases were affiliated with the NAACP. And of course, you had uh, lawyers with the Legal Defense Fund who were part of the cases as well. So I don't think any of the legal gains in the civil rights movement, especially before 1964 in the passage of the Civil Rights Act, could have been made I don't think any of those successes could have happened without the NAACP. Uh, and just a few more uh, questions, Professor. I mm -hmm. want to look at, you know, it took until 1970, like we said, for full integration to happen uh, in education in the state. What were some of the racial ramifications of that uh, going forward that maybe we can still even see today reflected in our education, uh, public education system, private education system in the state? Well, uh, one of the things is that an emphasis on private schools in certain parts of the state, segregation academies, as they were called back then. And there was an effort, just as there have been efforts leading up right up until, you know, practically this year to subsidize the tuition for students. And when I say students, I mean white students, although they never really said, you know, it's just for white students. Uh, but to subsidize tuition for these academies. That, I think, is one of the most important social and educational results of this because there were places, like I, I referred to earlier, there were places in South Carolina that had practically no white students in the schools, even, even though the school districts were desegregated on paper there weren't enough white students in the schools to really make desegregation real. And I, I think that's one of the most important social aspects of, of this is that even with desegregation, you still have a predominantly segregated society in certain parts of the state. That's still true. And it's very problematic as well. But, you know, despite the legal changes and things like that, there's 
there's only so much the law can do. And when confronted with social realities and economic realities, there are limits to what the law can accomplish without a social movement, without, you know, the, the law can sort of pull people along to a certain extent, but sometimes the, the people need to push along themselves uh, instead of being pulled by the law. I, I think one of the one of the main issues that we have coming out of this 40, 50 years later is uh, a continued need for a level of, of attention to some of these issues that sometimes it's, uh, it's in the forefront of people's minds and sometimes it sort of wanes or fades into the background. Um, the corridor of shame was a, you know, a big topic just a few years ago, and I've heard relatively few uh, references to school quality in the state of South Carolina in the last couple, three years. So it's it's something that uh, requires, w- without being too cliche, constant vigilance, I guess. Uh, we're even looking at, you know, the subsi- subsidizing of, you know, private schools, like we saw the mm-hmm. governor try to do with his uh, money from the CARES Act, and that didn't work out, of course, even after a legal challenge. So a lot of in-depth detail there, Professor Lowe, uh, which you go into and explore, and it's still very, uh, very important to know that, especially the way things are playing out today. And that's Professor Stephen Lowe, who is the author of the new book, The Slow Undoing, The Federal Courts and the Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina, which is available now from the USC Press. Professor Lowe, thanks again for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Professor Stephen Lowe. And just another illuminating line from his book in the final chapter titled, Desegregation, Not Integration, South Carolina Since 1968. Here's Lowe on the removal of the Confederate battle flag from Statehouse Grounds in 2015. Quote, The fact that the metaphorical battle over the flag ended with a very real and devastating massacre perpetuated by a white supremacist in the state that touted its integration with dignity is perhaps emblematic of the civil rights era. What a line right there. A lot of that in his book that you can find now. It's called The Slow Undoing. Thanks again, Professor Lowe, and stay tuned for our upcoming episodes as we continue our summer listening series. 